Hello and welcome to the Knife Hour. I'm so excited because today we have Peter Rayner back in the studio, film critic extraordinaire. Uh, he's going to read a little excerpt from his book, and we're going to talk about the 20th anniversary of one of my favorite films, L.A. Confidential, so stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. Hello and welcome. I'm Joel. And I'm Pega. And today we have Peter Rainer back in the studio. If you guys have been with us before, you know Peter's face. He's talked about um, his book and his experience with films. We also did Some Like It Hot just a few weeks ago. Um, and today we're going to talk about L.A. Confidential, which is one of maybe uh, the best neo-noir films. Some Like It Noir. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, so why don't you read a little bit from your book? Cause I yeah, I, great um, this is my book, Rainer on Film, 30 Years of Film Writing in a Turbulent and Transformative Era. Now that I've gotten done the shameless plug portion of the show, <laughs> uh, I, did, I did do a long essay on the L.A. Confidential uh, in this book. I also did um, uh, an, an essay just on film noir in general. So I'll just read a couple of paragraphs from both to give you a sense of who I am and possibly what the movie is like. Uh, I start out the review of L.A. Confidential by saying, um, the 50s era Los Angeles of L.A. Confidential is noir central. Its denizens are tattooed in shadow. The play of light and dark in the streets, the police stations, the morgues, is fetishistic. The post-war L.A. touted in the travelogues and billboards is a boomtown, but what we actually see is unsettling a city of the future infested by people with only a past. So that's kind of how hmm. I that saw the That is such uh, a great setup the for film. the movie. Yeah, and um, and then I go on about how uh, in noir, the, the people, it, it, it's sort of a reactionary genre in the sense that you're supposed to take people at face value for who they are. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you're a woman, you're no good. If you're rich, you're sleazy. You know, it's all kind of like that. Um, and as I write, the key to L.A. Confidential, what makes it different, is that just about everybody isn't what he or she seems. Sometimes the characters are even worse than you imagine. Sometimes they show off a valor and a rue that, that spin you around. The mysteries to be solved in L.A. Confidential aren't only whodunits. The flip-flops of character are mysteries, too. We never are sure how people will act in this film, uh, and that unease is part of the texture. So uh, it, it's it's kind of a noir, but it also is more progressive in some ways than a lot of the films that it that it uh, derives from. Uh, in a socially conscious way, also there are um, you know this sort of uh, police brutality against uh, Mexicans and, and Afro Americans in this film that are very uh, you know unusual for for the genre and and, and speaks to a lot of what's still going on in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll read one more quick excerpt from uh, another essay I did called Neo-Noir, which uh, talks about uh, L.A. and, and this uh, genre. Los Angeles is the city where you go to lose your past and create your future. It remains so despite the cataclysms of the past few years. It's makeover city, which is probably why it's always been a Xanadu for con artists and for artists, too. The distinction in L.A. is not always clear, it's a place where you feel as if you're on the lam, even if you stay put for 30 years. You're on the lam, but you still want to look good. The sunlight is an emollient. It makes you feel burnished, rich, favored. And uh, one more excerpt. The classic noir plot is about passion as descent. A hard-boiled softy is pulled down to his doom by a born-to-be-bad temptress. 
but noir is just as easily defined by its enameled fragments of style, its kabuki. Noir is about guns pulled out of desk drawers, ceiling fans, blackmail photos, cigarettes, jukeboxes, shattered wedding photos, black widows, voiceover narration that sounds like it was recorded at 3 a.m. in an all-night diner, Mm -hmm. fingerprints, penthouses, a pair of eyes in a rear-view mirror. The buzz of a motel sign is a clue to the mood. Noir is finally about being trapped, and the patterns of entrapment are depicted in near-abstract visuals. Characters are rendered as half-shadowed, almost sculptural forms. The glow of a streetlight through Venetian blinds registers as ghostly prison bars on the sodden, aghast face peering through the window. Anyway, that's kind of trying to set the mood in prose for what visually comes across so strongly in, in so many terrific mores such as this one. And done so excellently. What I like from that reading is the kind of tone that noir sets and kind of seeing how in uh, LA Confidential as a neo-noir, how they break those rules and also stick to them so closely. Uh, I'm particularly kind of noted how much time they spent outside in the daytime. Yeah. Which is rare in noir. It seems like noirs usually take place from like late afternoon to midnight. Right. Um, whereas this, we spend a lot of time in daytime doing horrendous, awful things, as you say. But just in bright daylight, can you talk to us a little bit about how uh, LA Confidential is embodies the neo noir genre and how it's maybe different from other neo noirs? Well, I think the way that it's similar to other noirs is is that it. It's all about depravity, ultimately, um, where there's some sort of shining knight or, or, or angel of mercy who is in the middle of it. In the, in the, in the uh, Raymond Chandler, uh, uh, Philip Marlowe movies, uh, as, as gritty as those movies were, uh, Philip Marlowe himself, who was played by various actors, most notably by Humphrey Bogart, was you know sort of the, the shining knight who walks down these mean streets, and you know it's all very sentimental. Um, even though it's supposed to be a real tough guy genre. Uh, and the women are all sort of, you know, nasty vamps for the most part mm-hmm. uh, who are there to, to draw men to their doom. And uh, in L.A. Confidential, uh, you know, as I, as I alluded to when I read the, the first uh, excerpt, the people are who they seem. The cops uh, in, in the police force at first, uh, all seem to fit a certain pattern. You know, one is sort of valorous, the other is corrupt, uh, on the take, and so forth. But then you start to see different sides of their character. They do ca- flip-flops. They're, they're, they're not who they really appear to be. And the Kim Basinger character, who plays a, a hooker, um, she works in, a, uh, in an establishment where the women are surgically altered to, to, to resemble the movie stars of the era, which actually existed at the time. That's true? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Yeah, and she uh, she was supposed to be Veronica Lake in the movie. Um, yeah, she is, uh, unlike a lot of the noir temptresses uh, who are classically in these films, uh, is, is, a, is an innocent, despite what she's doing. She's, she's really a, a, a sort of a, you know, uh, vanilla parfait... <laughs> <laughs> uh, innocent in this in this in this dark world. She's kind of got like a, a seedy pimp, for lack of better words, and she doesn't have much control over where she can go or what she can do. Right, right. But she and um, uh, and Bud White, the uh, the the sort of bully boy cop played by Russell Crowe in one of his first real breakout roles, um, 
they are in love. Uh, he's in love with her, even though he can't quite accept what she does. And then when he does, he thinks that she's, you know, uh, betrayed him. And it's 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 sort of a classic back and forth kind of fraught romance. But but there's a real romance romantic passion inside of it. It's 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 more than just the usual noir thing. You know, you know, I love you, babe. Or, or you know. <laughs> uh, uh, you know that sort of Robert Mitchum kind of thing. It's it, it goes a little deeper than that. Well, they kind of break down Russell Crowe's whole bad boy thing pretty fast when he opens up to her, and then he tells his horrifying backstory. And even as he's making these kinds of brutal, he one of the one of the lieutenants uh, asks him to be part of uh, an undercover kind of cop ring that will take out people before they can act. Essentially. Um, and at first, he's kind of willing, and then we see the wear and tear that has on him as a person. I think in a traditional noir, that he would either keep going or they'd pop a cap in everybody and be like, I yeah. solved the problem. Yeah, usually the way you solve problems in noirs is somebody gets shot and that's the end of it. You know, there was a famous anecdote on the movie The Big Sleep, uh, the, the, the great Humphrey Bogart, Lauren McCall. Mm-hmm. Noir that Howard Hawks directed, and William Faulkner was uh, one of the screenwriters on the movie. He used to come out to Hollywood periodically and, and make enough money to write his novels. And they couldn't figure out from the Raymond Chandler novel they were adapting why somebody was killed. You know, I mean, said, <laughs> what, I, this, this doesn't make any sense. So they went to Chandler and they said, "Why? Why does this person get shot?" And he says, "I don't know. I just needed to advance the plot." Oh my gosh! Because whenever you're stuck, just have somebody open the door and get shot, and then you can get a go from there. It's instant drama. So, Sure. Yeah. So, um, uh, but the the James Elroy novel that 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 the, the the film is based on is far more complex and sprawling than the movie. They did a great job, of Brian Helgeland and Curtis Hansen, of of carving out from this this vast novel uh, a, a workable structure and narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and what they've done, I think that's that's kind of new to the genre uh, or certainly different is, you know, as I said, that each of the characters has multiple sides, and you think you have somebody pegged as one way, and they turn out to be someone else. For the Kevin Spacey character, who, who is another cop who's sort of on the take, he, he, uh, he, he gives this uh, uh, sleazeball uh, tabloid newspaper um, uh, hints of, you know, leads up about you know, sleazy stories having to do with movie stars and stuff. And, he likes uh, to arrest movie stars and then have the paparazzi right there and they take photos right. as he's dragging them out of their house half naked. Right, that's oh, sort of gosh. a side job. He also is, an, is a, a consultant on a TV cop show where the cops are all, you know, true blue valiant, unlike the LAPD at that time. Um, and you think, well, here's a real sleazeball, this guy. But as the film progresses, there, there's a, a part of the film where he realizes that, that he may have set someone up who was murdered and he... he feels like there's blood on his hands and he wants to make good mm. on the horror horror that he that he did and and you know there, so there are things like that in this movie that are very atypical of noir definitely even the way that it was shot too right not like a typical like the cinematography right wasn't it's definitely as... it's not um i feel like we the, a lot of the older noirs i live in tend to be very close up have a lot of very intense kind of reaction shots whereas this is 
uh, very much an ensemble cast, I think. Um, as you say, Peter, they span a huge amount of time. They solve, I think, like four or five crimes in a two-hour span, yeah. which is an incredible like nod to the editor for being able to keep that story, that many people going, and it all makes sense. You're always aware of like what's happening. There's not a lot of confusion. Um, I know you were telling us beforehand that you knew Curtis Hansen, the director. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I'm curious as to what this film meant to him, and then kind of what kind of director was he? Yeah, Curtis was was a wonderful guy. I mean, just in personal terms, uh, in addition to everything else, he started out uh, as a film critic and a film editor. He was the editor of a movie magazine in in L.A., uh, where he grew up for the most part. And um, so he was just always saturated with movies, and and he started out uh, doing a lot of interviews and 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 f- features, and 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 then he started writing film scripts. He wrote the script to a Samuel Fuller movie called White Dog, which is a notorious movie uh, about racism um, that got heat from both sides. He also uh, wrote a terrific, very. Um, Underseen movie that he didn't direct called The Silent Partner with Elliot Gould. Uh, it's a Canadian film with a terrific uh, murder mystery. I've never seen this movie. Yeah, uh, and then he did a film uh, called The Bedroom Window and Bad Influence, both of which are pretty terrific. Um, the Hand That Rocked the Cradle was, uh, was a commercial success for him. But this movie was really a breakout movie for him. I first met him under very uh, stressful. <laughs> This was in the early 80s. He did a, a, a teen comedy. This was early in his career. One of Tom Cruise's first movies called Losing It. L-O-S-I-N it. <laughs> um, so they had some kind of reception for the film and the filmmakers at Curtis's house. I didn't really know him, but I got this invitation. And I thought, well, why? my parents you know, from New York were in town. So I thought, I'm going to show him a good time and you know, bring him <laughs> to a Hollywood party. What the heck? So I show up with my parents to Curtis's house, and it's it's like I don't see anybody milling around. I don't hear anything. It's kind of dark. I said, "Oh boy, what?" A... So I knock on the door, and they said, "Oh, the the party was last night." Oh um, no! But you know, he was really nice. I said, "Well, why don't you come in, bring your parents, and we'll talk about movies and stuff." So that's kind of how that all started Aww. for me. Yeah, and he. Um, a lot of critics, not just myself, always felt that he was sort of, you know, one of us because he came out of the same things. And, and, but the interesting thing about L.A. Confidential is that even though uh, it's, it's very much a genre piece in the sense that, you know, there has such a, a history to it, um, and even though he knew every movie ever made and could quote, you know, scenes from any movie ever made, uh, I didn't feel watching this movie that I'm watching some pastiche of of you know ripoffs and derivatives. Yeah, I mean it's it's very vital. Even though you can see where a lot of it is coming from, it, it's 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 very vital in a new way. Um, he did a film, uh, I think it was right after this or shortly after, uh, called Wonder Boys, which is um, just a terrific movie that not many people know. It's probably Michael Douglas's best performance. He plays this kind of ratty, rundown professor. You know, marriage is is a falling apart. Robert Downey Jr. is in it. Uh, it's based on a, a terrific novel. Uh, it, it, it's it's a marvelous, marvelous movie, and completely different in every way from L.A. Confidential. Uh, Curtis was really 
born out of his time because he he was like the kind of studio director who could do all different kinds of movies you know you do a western this this time and then you do a gangster film and then you yeah. do this film you know he did river wild which has meryl streep i Street, love that movie meryl streep you know on a <laughs> river did. raft right that's one of my favorite movies okay yeah sorry. he did that he did eight mile eight mile you know yeah uh, uh you know he did a lot of good stuff and um uh, he was also very very open to young filmmakers he for a while, he was sort of running the UCLA Film Archives and oh, would wow. sponsor screenings there, and he was just very active in a lot of uh, aspects of film. Nice. It's incredible. He was able to assemble um, an amazing cast, uh, Kevin Spacey, Crazy. Russell Crowe, Guy Pearce, uh, James Cromwell, who's one of my favorite character actors of all time, yeah. uh, Kim Basinger, Danny not, not the guy from Babe, however. That's a very <laughs> different character yes. in this film. It's very different. Um, but... I'm kind of curious as to the like initial public reaction, and then also um, Kim Basinger won her Oscar for this Best Supporting Actress, and it's such a it's one of those roles that's so small within the film, and she has a her character has a major impact, but she doesn't have a ton of screen time, especially considering the length and how much time the guys had. Um, and I'm wondering what made that a standout role for her. Mm-hmm. Was this for supporting? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um... Well, you know, you never know with the Oscars. Uh, and sometimes you can win for even less screen time than, than she had in this film. I mm-hmm. think, you know, Beatrice Strait in Network won the Oscar for Supporting Actress for, for one scene. Yeah. One wow. speech. One speech, really. And, uh, and Louise Fletcher in Cuckoo's Nest didn't really have a whole lot of screen time. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, one and of I the think that was for, 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 for Actress, even. Yeah, for, for Best Supporting Actress, she played uh, Queen Elizabeth in... Um, Shakespeare in Love. Oh, yeah. She had like two scenes, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's sort of, I think, I'm not totally nuts about Basinger in this film as opposed to most of the other actors. I think, you know, she looks unreal. Yeah. But, but I do think that, that the conception of her character is a little too, uh, you know, idealized and sentimental uh, for a lot of the, 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 the toughness that's otherwise in this movie. But I do think that it's that aspect of her that may have contributed to winning the Oscar because, mm-hmm. you know, she's she's such a, you know, sort of angel of mercy. She's such a goddess, and she's so much in the mold of the noir vamps, except that she's, you know, temperamentally and visually the opposite of, you know, someone like Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity, yeah. you know. But uh, but she, um, I think she typified a certain kind of of uh, a fever dream that, that people who watch these movies have, uh, and and she just fit the bill entirely, um, but you know she it, it's it's an integral part of the movie mm-hmm. because she's sort of the the, the counteraction to all the, the 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 slime and depravity that's in this movie, and without her it might be you know all rot, <laughs> but but with her and and the way she brings out Russell Crowe's. Uh, you know, soft side, uh, such as it is, um, I think it, it tenderized the film in a good way. Yeah, I was a little frustrated watching, uh, rewatching it, uh, because as great as there, she's like great written moments for her as a woman, but then at the end, after she's been done wrong by just really, really wrong, she's like, it's okay, it's fine. And I'm like, you harbored zero resentment or anger or yeah, frustration at yeah. these people for what they've put you through. Yeah. She's like, no, I'm just light and goodness. Right. Um, well, that's the thing. I mean, there isn't quite enough 
there there you know mm-hmm. i mean she's sort of so ethereal that 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 the normal consequences of 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 action doesn't really impinge on her mm-hmm. yeah she kind of lacks grit which again as you say was probably a little bit for balance in this film because right. everyone else has so much grit. So much grit, I know. <laughs> uh, let's look at our kind of inciting incident, which is uh, our Christmas, Bloody Christmas. Uh, this is uh, a cop is shot. Russell Crowe's partner is killed in a diner along with, I believe, like nine other people. It's a horrible slaughter. And uh, then they are informed that they have found the people who did it. Stop to help a damsel in distress. He's got his priorities all screwed up. Talk to your old tricks again, bud. Bye. Hey, Jack. Hollywood Jack. What brings you to our humble station house? Hey, what are you doing here? Hey, you know me. I'm keeping the streets safe, boys. <laughs> All right, take these two and get them dressed and book them. Yes, Please, sir. Don't Jack, the party's upstairs. Okay, I'll be right up. What's that for? Well, you are watch commander tonight, aren't you? Yeah. So? Well, it's a gratuity from Hush Hush magazine, you know, buy yourself a new pair of loafers. Uh, no thanks, Jack. You keep your payoff. I'm not interested. What the hell is this? Six, six. Mexicans, sir. The ones who assaulted Brown and Helenowski. Yeah, I heard Helenowski lost six pints of blood and Brown's in a coma. They're home with bruises and muscle pulls. It's not what I heard. Let's get these men booked and into the lockup. Hey, Steph, you guys hear what those taco vendors did to Helenowski and Brown? Helenowski lost an eye and they're reading Brown his last rites. Well, that ought to make for a very Merry Christmas for Helenowski and Brown. Hey, guys. Guys. We brought the Mexicans in. They're downstairs. Hey, Stensland, the party's upstairs. This doesn't concern you. Hi, guys. Haven't you got work to do? Go back to the party. Hey, hey, come on, come on, it's Christmas. Help come me out, on, right? Come on, Move it! Christmas Eve, I just got a few more questions for the kids. Hey, don't all have to be down here, guys. Hey, wife, you better put a leash on your partner before he kills somebody. Teach him a lesson! This is for ours, Pancho. Let me through. Kenny, do nothing. What are you looking at? What are you looking at? Come Bloody Christmas, Christmas was intense. Um, 
What I liked that you mentioned about earlier was the way that this noir takes on racial prejudice and issues, uh, where typically I think, uh, especially older noirs, tend to be all white or um, have incredibly racist stereotypes when there are people of color. Here, there's humanity brought into a lot of them. There's this, um, and then there's four guys later who wind up getting arrested First unjustifiably, and then very justifiably, and then <laughs> their names are besmirched. Um, but they handle it with with uh, a reality and with um, with respect, I think, um, which I really appreciate. Um, what I also like about the scene is the way it really showcases the show don't tell rule. This is one of the great cinema rules of you know just show us. We see a struggle for power. We see Russell Crowe being like, I don't have to ask anybody. I just am in charge. You need to move. Whereas Guy Pierce is constantly like, let me through. Let me in. I want to be important. Um, for those of you who haven't seen the movie yet, uh, Guy Pierce's character is trying to follow in his father's footsteps and be the same kind of. Uh, police officer he was uh we see the drunk partner of russell crowe who is really struggling to hold on to his senses he's uh drunk we see him driving around in the back of the cop car for the first like seven minutes of the movie not really doing any police work at all he doesn't even get out of the car when they make um, a house arrest um i'm curious as to how you feel about the overall like writing structure of the movie and maybe uh these characters in particular. We talked a little bit about how they're different in that they're, like, fully-fleshed people, but but as cops, I feel like we maybe don't get to see this kind of side of LAPD a lot in cinema. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that's that's shocking about the violence in this movie, even though I guess it shouldn't be, because uh, is, is that a lot of the violence in this film erupts from, uh, you know, racial animus, uh, uh, and 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 it shows the the uh, the the errant racism of the LAPD at that time, in the fifties, uh, and and the ways in which it was covered up. So in a sense, the the murders that are covered up in this movie are uh, are more than just the usual fare. I mean, it's it's it goes deeper than that. It's it's sort of in, in a way the film is an indictment of an entire. Uh, uh, police authority and and what what they were able to get away with, while at the same time it does hold people accountable of all races for for the the violence and harm that is done, but it it doesn't um, you know and it does it in a way that isn't bludgeoning. I think I mean there's a lot of bludgeoning in the movie, <laughs> but but it doesn't hit you over the head with mm-hmm. social consciousness mm-hmm. the way a lot of a lot of films you know film directors would have. Because Curtis, I think, was first and foremost a, a filmmaker. You know, you can see even in this clip uh, how dynamic the filming is. You know, the the traveling shots with the with the prison bars, mm-hmm. and, and I mean, it really it's it's alive. It moves. Um, his his mentor was was Don Siegel, who really? did a lot of crime films, wow. and and uh, and I think you know he learned from Siegel, and then sort of you know, and then some, you know, and how to make scenes like this, you know, dynamic, without losing the thread of what you're watching, without losing the the uh, uh, the abhorrence for violence, even as he shows it to you, there are a lot of directors who, when they show violence in movies, you know, they're kind of getting off on it mm-hmm. in a yeah, way. Yeah, it's more like shock factor than. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they just sort of want to keep you from falling asleep, or they want to, you know, raise your <laughs> raise your temperature. But but it's really in there just to sort of goose you. Mm-hmm. But in this movie, the violence is there uh, uh, as excitingly as it's filmed to to show you the. Uh, 
you know, the the dangers of violence and, mm-hmm. and, and the consequences of violence. I think the ease in which it can overtake people. At one point, Russell Crowe's character kills a guy, and you can debate whether or not it was justifiable, but he certainly wasn't in any danger when he pulls the trigger. And then his immediate first steps are to make sure that he plants a gun on the guy, he shoots a shot where he would have been standing. They, they dress the scene up and down real quick, and then they're out. Yeah. Um, and without any care for the lives that they've destroyed. That, at another point, they bribe someone into giving them information in exchange for 10 years off his brother's jail sentence. And when the guy tries to collect on that information to say, how can we make sure that he gets 10 less years? They're like, you'll figure it out. Keep your head up. Bye. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a very... It's a very- callous and cruel and brutal world and and it's 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 very clear from the first frames that this is the world that we're we're living in in this in this film it's not we're not playing by the usual ethical or moral rules mm-hmm. uh and um you know I don't want to make too much of a case for it being a microcosm of blah blah but mm-hmm. but it does sort of certainly fit in with a certain um aspect to 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 Violence and authority in in American society uh, that we can see even to this day. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of um, you know a lot of the the police violence that goes on now. You know, whatever uh, one feels about how that's justified, it's 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 very much uh, current still. And and uh, but in the days of of the 50s in the LAPD, there was absolute uh, and clear you know uh, uh, you know racism. And uh, and this film brings it out, you know, very strongly. Mm-hmm. Have either of you read the book? I have not read the book. Have you read the book? I read it when the film first came out. It's a like it's a very long and sprawling book, okay. and and it's, uh, you know, it, it it kind of, I like I prefer the movie in the sense that that I think it sort of focuses one aspect of the book in a way that that really you know drives home a lot of these things that I've been talking about. Um, but you know, Elroy is is revered for 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 these books, and yeah. and this is one of his best. Yeah, there's yeah. certainly a sense of uh, like young men finding purpose within their roles. Essentially, they all go from being average cops with very um, selfish goals to police officers who want to make the environment in which they work better. Um, and I think that that really holds up and stands out 20 years later. Um, what do you think, uh, just as far as the genre and maybe film history as a whole, like where does this film stand? Like what does it mean to kind of film history? Well, when it came out, uh, and, and even to this day, there there are an awful lot of really good film noirs that were made in, you know, starting, I guess, depending on how you look at it, the Maltese Falcon in 1941. You know, but the early '40s was kind of when this all started, and and it, it's a fascinating genre because it was really created in a sense by a lot of uh, German uh, immigrants to Hollywood. You know, with all of that expressionist dark lighting, and you know, a lot of the great noirs were directed by uh, European immigrants like mm-hmm. Billy Wilder, Fritz Lang, Robert Siodmak, Otto Preminger, Laura. You know, all of these directors were from Germany and Austria. Mm-hmm. A lot of the, the cameramen also. Um, uh, there was even a talk at one point that the reason so many film noirs were dark is because they were made on shoestrings and they didn't have the money for a lot of lighting. <laughs> you know, there may be something to that. Uh, but um, uh, then the genre it played itself out sort of in in the fifties with these hard boiled kiss me deadly movies. Uh, but of course, Chinatown was was a, a great example of a modern quote modern color noir. 
and uh, around the time of, of LA Confidential, there was another really terrific uh, uh, noir, um, Devil in a Blue Dress. Love with, uh, that. With Denzel, Denzel Washington mm-hmm. uh, Love Denzel. as Easy, Easy Rollins. <laughs> Uh, and, and that, I think, that and, and L.A. Confidential and Chinatown, I think, are the three classic, best, modern noirs in, in color. You really don't make them in black and white anymore. Right. Uh, you know, there were a lot of not-so-great ones. You know, there was a remake of, I think, The Big Sleep with, with Mitchum and just, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, but, but in all three of those examples that I mentioned, uh, there's a real passion for... Not only the genre, but but of of trying to break through and do something that has sort of social meaning as well. And Chinatown, don't forget, was about you know the great water grab and and a lot of you know corruption mm-hmm. that went on uh, in L.A. at that time. Uh, and Devil in a Blue Dress is one of the very few uh, films of any kind you know that really uh, showed you know African American uh, 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 life. It, you know, on the sidelines of L.A., so to speak, uh, in ways that had never been captured uh, for that kind of film before. So it, um, uh, I think it fits very well with, uh, uh, you know, one of the top 20, uh, some, you know, certainly one of the top three or four of the modern era. Nice. Absolutely. Uh, as I've been talking a lot about casting just because I think it's such an outstanding cast and they've done... Uh, really great work together. I'm uh, strongly in the team of people who believe the Oscars need to have a best uh, casting director uh, category. I know there's a lot of debate about that, but I think they do really good work and put good people together. Um, I think we see that really well in the scene where uh, Lynn and, oh, names, uh, Russell Crowe's character first meet. Bud White. Yes, thank you. Not Bud Light, Bud White. (laughs) (laughs) Can we pull up that clip real quick? It's okay. It's the one where Lynn and Bud meet. Perfect. Come on, I know you're not asleep. You're talking to me? What do you want? My five bucks. This is a famous movie, yes? That they're watching here? Right now? In the frame? I can't think. It's a Veronica Lake movie, but I couldn't tell. Oh, baby. They're reenacting it uh, in yeah, the scene. I think it's this gun for hire with no. Alan Ladd and John Ah, okay. It's sort of hard to see. Gun for hire. Copy. Is there sound on this? There should be. Oh, okay. Yeah, we got nothing in our cans, but that's okay. Miss Bracken, I'm Officer White. I've been expecting you, just not this soon. Pierce called. He told me what happened to Sue. Everything all right, doll? You want me to get rid of him? I love that her John tries to take the tough guy act outside of the house space. LAPD shouldn't hurt. Get the fuck out of here. And you kind of see the the caricature of the the hard-boiled egg, as you say, as compared to what the real thing looks like here. <laughs> Officer Counselor. 
Would you care for a drink? Yeah, scotch. Straight. Shaking, <laughs> I was friendly with Sue Lefferts, but we weren't friends. You know what I mean? You sorry she's dead? Of course I am. What kind of question is that? Do you know why Pierce is humoring you? If you use words like that, you might make me mad. But do you know? Yeah, I know. Patchett's running whores. Cut to look like movie stars. Judging by his address, probably something bigger on the side. He doesn't want any attention. That's right. Our motives are selfish. So we're cooperating. So cooperate, Miss Bracken. Why was Susan Leffert at the night owl? I don't know. I never heard of the night owl till today. How did she meet Patrick? Pierce meets people. Sue came on a bus with dreams of Hollywood, and this is how they turned out. Thanks to Pierce, we still get to act a little. Tell me about Pierce. He's waiting for you to mention money. You want some advice, Miss Bracken? It's Lynn. Miss Bracken, don't ever try to fucking bribe me or threaten me, or I'll have you and Patchett and shit up to your ears. I remember you from Christmas Eve. You have a thing for helping women, don't you, Officer White? Maybe I'm just fucking curious. You say fuck a lot. You fuck for money. There's blood on your shirt. Is that an integral part of your job? Yeah. Do you enjoy it? When they deserve it. Did they deserve it today? I'm not sure. But you did it anyway. Yeah. Just like the half dozen guys you screwed today. Well, actually, it was only two. You're different, Officer White. You're the first man in five years who didn't tell me I look like Veronica Lake inside of a minute. You look better than Veronica Lake. Aw, romance. I really like these guys. Yeah, well, that line, you look better than her, that sort of, it's it like you had me at hello. Yeah. Kind of, that, that's a classic line in this film. Absolutely. Is there anything you think the general public gets wrong about this movie a lot? I know sometimes movies go beyond... Uh, just they're showing and enter the zeitgeist and they're kind of consumed and, and weird in different ways than they were ever originally perceived or intended to be. Well, I don't know that this movie, as, as acclaimed as it is, I don't know that it's, um, you know, like Star Wars or something that people just sort of talk about sure. as, as part of it. Uh, I, I think it's, it has a little more of a, of a cultish reputation, perhaps, mm -hmm. than, uh, than even a film like Chinatown. Uh, as I recall, it did win the Oscar for Best Screenplay, though. Yeah. Yeah. Best Adaptation, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, a lot of people want to experience this film basically as a brutal cop thriller and a mystery. And that's fine, I suppose. You know, that's not all that the movie is. That's not all that, that, that Curtis was trying to do in this film. But it's perfectly... Uh, usable in that way, in the same way that you can watch The Godfather and 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 just see it as a, a great big gangster movie, uh, which is which it is, without also understanding that it's about a great deal more than that. It's it's sort of about the you know the dark side of the American dream, and it's about uh, you know so many things having to do with with America. Uh, so. You know, people take movies in whatever way they can, and I think one of the 
great things about this film, L.A. Confidential, is that it, it allows you to take from it what you want and still enjoy it and not misrepresent it, really. You know, I mean, it's just that what it is at its core is a very entertaining uh, cop thriller, but then it can be so much more than that if you allow it to be. Absolutely. It's a, it's a stunning film. Um, Curtis Hansen is an incredible director with, as we've learned today, a huge range, 8 Mile. Uh, so- the River Wild. Big, big as like a movie I've watched. <laughs> um, in, in her shoes, that was another. Yeah, movie. yeah another uh, great oh. movie. Yeah, um, and and of course, uh, great cast early on. If you guys want to see a young, stunningly chiseled Guy Pierce, uh, check out LA Confidential. It is uh, completely worth your time. Uh, I don't know. I yeah. I mean, imagine the. Look at all the people in this movie who who were either relatively new to movies or really had broken through. Uh, you know, Guy Pearce, Russell Crowe. Then you also have you know, there's Kevin Spacey, there's James Cromwell, there's Kim Basinger, there's David Strathairn, great yes. actor, uh, playing the sort of you know uh, pimp, pimp, de, pimp, de pimpy or whatever you call. Them. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, there's just an endless number of really good actors in this film. Like, too much almost, you know, because you want to spend more time with each of them. Absolutely. Uh, you know, as they're getting into the habit of making uh, movies into television shows, if they wanted to do a really well-written cop drama based on L.A. in the 50s, I would definitely be there for it. What else should people know about this film? Is there anything that we didn't cover that you're like, man, we need to highlight this? Well, I just, I think it was, I know that when, when the film came out, a film director, a friend of mine said, says, you know, Curtis Hansen was, was a good, solid director, but I'd never seen a, an, an example where someone went from, you know, pretty good to great mm-hmm. in one movie, that he, it all sort of seemed to come together for him in this film. Uh, and uh, in a way it sort of summarized who he was as, as a filmmaker and also as a film scholar, you know, as mm-hmm. a film uh, a critic. Uh, he, um, uh, it, was, it was very gratifying that the film did as well as it did at the time because, you know, what's, what's awful is when you make a film that's this good and it just sort of goes by the wayside. Uh, as I mentioned, his, his next film, Wonder Boys, which I think is as good in an, in an entirely different way, did not get the same attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, although Michael Douglas, I think, still feels it's his best performance. Um, uh, he spends about half the movie in a ratty bathrobe. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's not, you know, Gordon Gecko. Uh, but... Um, yeah, definitely yeah. not. Sorry, I just pulled up a picture of it, and he's got the, uh, if you guys are fans of Blank Check, like I am, he's got that exact same look of just glasses oh, pointed down, God. looking over them. You know what I'm talking yes, about. Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, you, you know, I think it's it's an example, this movie, of, of um, you know, of versatility, if you look at the, the range of, of, of Curtis's work. You know, he... He passed away, I guess, maybe eight months ago at this yeah. point or something. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, he really was was tremendously active in all aspects of film uh, throughout his entire career. And he started pretty young, uh, if you count, you know, working with the film magazines. I don't even think he went to college. I think he just kind of, wow. you know, decided He just to, knew films where it was at. Uh, yeah. How yeah. do you think being a critic shaped his view as a director? 
Well, that's interesting because there are a lot of there isn't so much of a tradition of that in in America. There certainly is in like in France, where most of the French New Wave were critics: Truffaut, Godard, uh, Chevrol, Romer. Uh, a lot of these directors started out as critics, uh, attacking all these older filmmakers. <laughs> and you know, they they were the Young Turks. It was actually kind of unfair, but that's what they did. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I think you know, in Curtis's case. It it all it meant was that he he wanted to make the kind of movies that he wanted to see, you know, and because he had such a, a wide range of uh, such a you know not in a religious sense such a Catholic sense of of you know the totality of what films can be. That's one reason why he was so versatile, uh, and he made such a wide range of movies. You know, from Eight Mile to River Wild to L.A. Confidential. Uh, to Wonder Boys, you know, there's a tremendous range there of, of mostly highly successful efforts. Well, he wasn't just versatile, but the films were, you know, not all that great, but they were different. And no, they were they were very good in different ways. Um, he didn't, you know, as I said before, become overly academic in terms of working a lot of, you know, clips from films and, 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 and referencing lots of other movies. And, and, you know, you don't feel like you're watching greatest hits from other films. This was sometimes a problem with directors like Peter Bogdanovich, who wasn't exactly a critic, but he was a film writer, a magazine writer, who did a lot of interviews with film people and then became a film director. And some of his pictures are really quite good, like Last Picture Show and his first film Targets and yeah. St. Jack and others. Um, but but he, he did have a tendency to, you know, kind of go, well, this is his Howard Hawks shot or this is his, you know... Uh, uh, Billy Wilder moment or his John Ford mm-hmm. vista. Um, I never really got that feeling uh, with Curtis's films because they're so dynamic. So even though we watched that, you know, the, the, the prison fight scene in L.A. Confidential, he said, yeah, I remember, you know, Don Siegel's The Lineup and other other films that, that obviously he saw, but, but it has a life entirely of its own. And, um, and one of the problems I have with, with, with critics in general, is that they tend to review movies based on other movies as opposed to, yes. you know, like real life talking about, <laughs> right. you know, and that can be that can be a problem with, with critic turns filmmakers as well, that they tend to make movies based on other movies. Mm. Uh, but I don't really find that here, uh, although certainly L.A. Confidential has all of the booby traps for that to happen. Yeah. Uh, but somehow, it, it, it you know, 98% of the time, it, it rises above that. Yeah. I feel like Curtis Hansen kind of epitomizes what a lot of young directors are doing now because it, we live in a world where literally everyone's a critic now not everybody's a good critic or right. or and we have very few great critics right. but everybody there's a space for everyone to to share their opinions on films and i know a lot of the students that we get in have spent a lot of their youth reviewing like living on netflix reviewing mm-hmm. and now they want to make their own visions and i think a great life life lesson, filmmaking lesson to take from Curtis and his work is that imitating life is much better than imitating art and that, you know, you don't have to confine yourself to a specific space or to a specific style. You can go all out and explore different types of stories and I think that that's kind of what makes LA Confidential great is it has the feeling of somebody who knows and loves LA but who's been able to view it from outside. Yeah, I think, you know, it's Tarantino is a filmmaker who I sort of have mixed feelings about because sure. he does some of what I was talking about that that even though he writes terrific dialogue and the characters can be really sharp and he has a great film sense and all the rest of it 
But most of the time with his movies, I feel like I'm watching some like a movie within quotation marks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, you know that that it's not really the movie doesn't really have a, a, a vital center or life of its own. It's it's kind of uh, you know transposed from Bill all Bill these millions the sh- of movies that he saw when he was working in a video store yeah, and, and right. subsequently. Whereas with, with, with Curtis's films, I, I, I generally don't feel that way, even though there's every reason to, 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 you know, to have felt that way, uh, give, given his background and the kinds of films that he made. But it's, it's a different sort of thing. Uh, and it's absolutely true. If, if I would say to any young filmmaker out there, uh, don't make movies based on other movies. You can certainly love film and you can love filmmakers you can go oh what a great shot and all of that is great but when when you come down to it and you make a movie you have to kind of put all that to the side and and say all right i want to put the camera here because it's the best place to 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 show this scene to show off this actor to show off this this moment in the movie not because it's an orson welles shot right or john ford shot uh, because you know what you end up with is is something that that even if it's effective is really not who you are, and uh, and I think it's it's you know but but it's it's kind of a uh, a security net for a lot of, of filmmakers sure. to feel that you know I I'm going to piggyback on this and and do it in, in in a way that's been done before or or you know do that kind of a traveling shot that I mm-hmm. saw in this and. You know, I understand that. I mean, as a writer, you know, we all came out of other writers, and you know, we 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 rely too heavily on mentors, et cetera. But you know, you sort of break through to your own voice, and I think it's the same thing with with filmmakers. And and whether you come out of film scholarship or criticism or film school or anywhere else, uh, the same reasoning applies. You know, yeah. film film from life, not from other movies. I feel like there's a thin line between inspiration and intent. Imitation. Yes, absolutely. And perspiration. And perspiration. Uh, yeah, I mean, and yeah. sometimes, you know, I'm not saying that all imitation is bad. There's there's some films that, that very clearly are meant to, uh, you know, mimic other movies, and and, uh, and, and and you sort of, there's a wink-wink going on. I mean, it's true of most Tarantino films. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and to some extent, I think that that can be kind of fun. Uh, but in the end, I always feel like, you know, what am I really getting here? Mm. Uh, it's, it's, it, it's not the same full experience that you want from, from something that, that is, is, is created totally out of the, the filmmaker's, you know, feeling and passion for the material and not for other films. Absolutely. Slightly off subject, but because we're kind of here, I, I have to ask, do you Uh-oh. feel? <laughs> I just—it's burning inside. I'm gonna ask it. Okay, burning. So, okay, we gotta get this. <laughs> uh, so, how do you feel about the Disney live remakes? The which? The Disney live remakes. The ones. Oh, the Disney live remakes. Yeah, the ones <clears throat> are taking their animations and and turning them live. Just it, Aladdin just was announced. Yeah, and they've done yeah. Cinderella, <laughs> Beauty and I the think Beast. We know our answer. Cinderella and Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm not too crazy about it. Do you think that's just a continued symptom of if they make money, which they have been, they'll Mm. they'll they'll go into the archives and you'll be seeing Pinocchio and you know Steamboat Willie. Yeah, Yeah, I mean (laughs) they'll just play this for all it's worth. Uh, Look, there are no rules. My rule is there are no rules, and 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 if tomorrow if Aladdin turns out to be a great movie, 
I'm not going to sit there and grumble and go, damn, it's a great movie. <laughs> you know, uh, there are few of those to begin with. Mm -hmm. But I do think that, that, you know, Beauty and the Beast as an animated film uh, existed very much in the world of animation. Yes. It's not like it's some story that you can transpose to another medium and it's kind of the same thing or, you know. I mean, it, it exists very much in terms of its animation and the music. And, and if you do that... Uh, as live action, I I personally think you lose something, and it's. But part of it is because you're thinking of the animated movie, so you're constantly comparing it. But there may be people who feel like, well, animation's for kids. You know, this is live the real people, and so it's yeah. better. You know, it's complicated. But I didn't think that either of those films was terrifically, you know, done in 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 terms of live action, or I would have said, okay. All right, as long as it works. I think for me, I don't know about you, but mm -hmm. it's the nostalgia of the story and, and the memories that you attach to that story when you were younger. So you're like, I'm going to go see it again. No. I'm such an animation head, though. Like, I you? really, really enjoy animated features and short, literally animation in any form. Um, and to see some of these go to live action, the, the magic that is held within a pencil doesn't quite translate for me. Um, right. But that being said, I, I do think it's interesting. We're seeing a ton of reboots, relaunches, um, people kind of going through old material and recycling it and I'm not I'm rarely a huge fan of it because I don't think as Ms. Rainer was saying that it touches on things that we need to be talking about as a society and I think that's film's greatest aspect is that it can hold a mirror up to society mm -hmm. and make you question things or make you question reality or even help you escape which a lot of films in their incredibly violent nature don't allow people to do anymore I don't right. think of them less as escape yeah. films and more of like like really awful mirrors. Um, yeah, I mean, I like you know, pure escapism is just fine with me. I, I, I you know, I, I think films can be can be anything, and 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 I only like socially conscious movies when they're good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, uh, Baby Driver is is in no way any kind of film that that one would recommend to you know uh, the UN, but it, <laughs> uh, but you know, I mean, for what it was, uh, you know, it's sort of disposable. Summer flick. music video yeah, turned sure. movie. I thought it was it was quite entertaining. The irony is with the animated films that you're talking about, the Disney film. I thought that the animated films were more cinematic than the live action Thank versions. You. They yes. were more interestingly, you know. I mean, animated movies can be really well shot. You know, when you think about it, I mean, they're uh -huh. still movies, right? They're still Pixar actually hires cinematographers to shoot a lot of things like uh, in real life that they then go back and animate, but they want a cinematographer's specific eye before they try to get it down. Yeah, but these movies exist. You know, imagine if somebody tried to do some of the Miyazaki films, like Spirited Away, and some of Meh. you know, I mean, if they did that as a live action, it would it would neuter, it would denature the very nature of what made that film great. Right? Uh, why not just do something? Different instead of trying to, you know, then they'd have to fabricate a, a, a live action thing. That's the problem I have with so much of the, the remake, the sequels, the prequels, mm. the, the franchise, is that there's not enough new stuff going on, mm -hmm. you know? And, and when you think about it, all of these franchises all began with a single movie that, no one, mm -hmm. that someone took a chance on in some way mm -hmm. that did well. Uh, so, you know, why not? Do more of those, and not so many uh, uh, spin-offs and and retreads. We encourage you to make original things and also watch original things. 
I'm a nerd, so obviously I will be watching a lot of the reboots, remakes, and restructuring <laughs> of things. They're not all bad, but, you know, seek out content that maybe wouldn't be available to you otherwise, or, or it's harder to find. Don't just digest what is delivered to you. Um, we want to encourage you also to please watch uh, LA Confidential. Uh, Persina Lottie was in the chat. She says she's just starting to watch it, so enjoy that viewing. It should be a lot of fun. Uh, we, of course, want to thank Mr. Rainer for coming back. Thank, as you. thank you, as always. Your insight is wonderful. It's always fun to kind of rewatch a movie through your eyes and through your uh, knowledge. Uh, I've been Joelle. And I've been Pega. <laughs> this is the New York Film Academy Hour. Thank you so much for being here. We'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, Christian Harloff, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit PopcornTalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of its owners or principals.